All right, we are very blessed today to have Porter Harlow with us. He's going to come up and tell you a little bit about himself, um, but he's going to be bringing God's word to us today. So welcome, Porter. Thanks for being with us, and we look forward to hearing what God has to say through you. Greetings. It's an honor to be here with you this morning. Um, I am the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church. We're a church that's a little over two years old. Um, you all, the first time I ever came here was in the spring of 2019. We were just about to launch uh, worship in Terra Center Elementary School in Burke, Virginia, about 30, 40 minutes from here. And uh, you all had me up and prayed for us, and thank you. We needed those prayers. If you had told me when we launched that we would spend three of our first 12 months not even meeting, I would have thought, well, I hope it was fun while it lasted. But the Lord has used the pandemic to grow us in our membership, um, to deepen our relationships with people who didn't know each other very well before that, and it's... Uh, your prayers and the prayers of many others have, have really helped. Yeah. Sorry. If we're going to dip this down, that's totally fine. But would you mind clipping this to your tie? Yeah. Just that way. There we go. Very All sorry right. for the Thank you. Um, so I'm thankful. I'm thankful for your pastor. I'm thankful for whoever posts his sermons on the internet, on your website. I'm thankful for that. I'm preaching through the book of John, and about once a month, I will go and listen to his sermon on that passage from, I think, 2007. Um, so that's uh, a real blessing to me. And I'm thankful for Frank. Where is Frank? Frank is, uh, I wear many hats at our church plant. I'm the senior pastor, and I'm, on, I'm the youth pastor. And when we launched Sunday school for middle school and high school uh, students this past spring, um, I called Frank with lots of dumb questions and he helped me, wrote me nice emails with uh, things I needed like icebreakers. What's a good icebreaker, Frank, for our first class? And he was very, very generous with his time. Uh, we're in the, going to look at John chapter 11. If you'll open your Bibles with me or open your phones with me to John chapter 11. It's a pass, the passage about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. At the beginning of chapter 11, Lazarus has fallen deathly ill. And his sisters send for Jesus to come. But rather than come, Jesus intentionally delays coming to them for two days. Not because he doesn't love Lazarus. Not because he doesn't love his sisters, Mary and Martha. But because he wants to show them something. And he wants to show their entire village something. And he wants to show you and me this morning something. The glory of God that he possesses when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Just before this passage, Martha rushes out. Jesus comes to the edge of town, the edge of Bethany. Martha rushes out to see him and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus responds to her saying, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, he's saying, I don't have to ask anyone else. I have the words of life. 
because I am the Word, the Word who was with God and the Word who was God. Jesus was telling her, life is mine to give. So Martha starts this passage, I'm going to start in verse 27, with this tremendous profession of faith, where she says, starting in verse 27, Martha said to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, Mary rose quickly and went to Jesus. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with Mary in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Here ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Much of church history has been a struggle to keep in view a balanced view of Jesus' humanity as well as his divinity. His humanity and his divinity. And in the fourth century, the Council of Nicaea wrote the Nicene Creed 
to affirm the full divinity of Jesus Christ in response to Arius and his followers in Arianism, who guarding the majesty of God would not affirm the full divinity of Christ, saying that he's, yeah, he's like God, but he's not fully God, the same in substance as the Father. So the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed corrected that heresy. Well, as you might suspect, people overreacted in the other direction. About 100 years later, they had to have the Council of Chalcedon. It was formed to respond to the Docetists and Docetism, who tried to protect the divinity of Christ and in doing so denied the full humanity of Christ. Church historians and pastors like to keep those struggles in front of the church because they recur again and again, often unintentionally. We simply overemphasize one aspect of, who, of Christ's, one of Christ's natures to the neglect of one of his other natures. Some say a weakness in the American church today is an overemphasis on Christ's humanity to the neglect of his majesty. For much of my life, I've had the opposite problem. Christ's divinity gobbled up his humanity. I didn't appreciate that Christ has emotions, that Christ has sympathy for me, and that he still does. This afternoon's passage presents a very balanced view of Christ because it begins first with a picture of Jesus' divinity, and then it presents with a picture of his perfect humanity, and then third, it ends with this fireworks finale as Christ puts on display the glory of God. So that's my outline. First, let's look at the divinity of Jesus. In verse 28, Jesus is calling for Mary to come see him on the edge of town. Mary rises quickly in verse 29, and she rushes to Jesus without even telling the other mourners in her house where she's going. But they follow her, thinking she's going to the tomb. And in verse 32, it says that when Mary reached Jesus, she fell at his feet in worship. In worship. Calvin wrote about Mary. Mary honors Christ beyond the normal custom of men. We don't fall at the feet of men. That is what we do for God. And worshiping at the feet of Jesus is what Mary likes to do. That's the picture we have in Luke 10 when Jesus comes to her, her house in Bethany. Jesus sits down and Mary sits at his feet. A student in front of the rabbi is the picture. Where Mar while Martha's messing around with the table, trying to prepare the meal, Martha's complaining to Jesus, will you tell my sister to help me? Martha's sitting there worshiping worshiping Jesus, listening to him teach her. Can you imagine being in Jesus's presence, him teaching you and you getting to ask questions? Jesus, what did you mean by this? The privilege, she soaked it up. She soaked it up. Here in John 11, Mary again is worshiping at the feet of Jesus. And in the next chapter, chapter 12, there's a large banquet for Jesus and for the risen Lazarus. And where is Mary? She's at Jesus's feet, anointing his feet with nard and wiping them with her hair. This instance is a bold move for Mary to worship Jesus publicly. 
in the presence of so many unbelievers from her village, as well as those from Jerusalem, where Jesus had many enemies. But Mary is unconcerned for her reputation. She's willing to humble herself, worshiping Christ while still grieving that he did not do for her what she wanted him to. And then in verse 33, we see a tremendous display of Jesus's humanity, his perfect humanity. In verse 33, Jesus sees Mary weeping. The Greek word here for weeping means bitter weeping. It sometimes means wailing, lament. Jesus sees Mary weeping. He's hearing her express her disappointment that in what he did not do. And then he looks over Mary and he sees all the other mourners from the village who are weeping over the death of this young man. Lazarus was not an old man. He was not in declining health where people might have expected this or their hearts might have been prepared for this. This was an unexpected death in an ancient culture where Lazarus was probably the head of household. He was probably the provider and the protector of his unmarried sisters. Jesus sees the grief Lazarus's death has caused. And God's word tells us in verse 32, quote, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved is a fine translation of the Greek word. The King James Version translates it, he groaned. He groaned. You get a sense of how deeply moved he was from the groan. You, the adverb form of this word has been used to describe actions done in anger, in indignation. But there's no action here. He, there's no lashing out from Jesus. There's no, there's no, there's just churning anger inside of him is the sense. And the Greek word for deeply troubled also means deeply disturbed. The gospel writer, the apostle John, also uses it in John chapter 5 when the pool of Bethesda was stirred and the waters were disturbed, perhaps by an angel of the Lord, so that the disabled man could try to jump in and, and be healed. And you get a sense of this churning, stirring in the guts of Jesus inside, this tremendous stirring of emotions. This is the conclusion of John Calvin, as well as the great theologian of old Princeton, B.B. Warfield, who wrote, the emotion which tore Christ's breast and clamored for utterance was justified rage. The expression even of this rage, however, was strongly curbed. In other words, Jesus feels the same emotions that we feel, but without any sinful reasons for them and without sinful expressions. His rage is justified. His self-control is perfect. He does not yell at anyone or lose his temper. Warfield writes, quote, the spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to Jesus's consciousness, the evil of death, its unnaturalness, 
It's violent tyranny, as Calvin phrases it. In Mary's grief, he contemplates the general misery of the entire human race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that is the object of Jesus's wrath and behind him who and behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. This is a reminder that death is not a natural part of this world. It is unnatural. Death is an interruption in our relationships that were meant to endure forever. When God created this world, Adam was created to be immortal. And under the covenant of works, Adam and his children would live forever unless, unless they sinned. Adam did, and we all have. So death entered into this world as a curse, as a just punishment for our sin. Sometimes sin looks attractive and exciting and something to be desired. But this passage shows us the reality of sin. As Jesus stands in front of his friend's tomb, his dear friend, who is decomposing inside, standing there with his weeping sisters, with his weeping neighbors, and Jesus, in sympathy, weeps with them. A reminder that Jesus is not cold and indifferent to our suffering and our grief. Jesus weeps with those who weep, and he mourns with those who mourn, and he calls us to follow him in sympathizing with each other. Terry Johnson, the senior pastor of Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia, one of the churches that supported our church before when we were launching worship, he tells the story of Christ Church in Savannah, Georgia. When it voted to leave the Episcopal Church, when a gay man was ordained as the Bishop of New Hampshire, Christ Church voted to go into the Anglican Church of North America, and the Episcopal Church responded by ejecting them from their building, in which they had worshipped since 1733. Their building was older than our nation by, I think, 43 years. Independent Prez made a decision to share their building with Christ Church until they found another building in downtown Savannah where they could worship. So IPC moved their worship times to accommodate the worship times of Christ Church. And during Christ Church's last worship service in their building, the congregation went outside and they walked the several blocks to Independent Presbyterian Church, their new temporary home. And they went weeping to leave a place where grandparents had worshiped, where grandparents had been baptized, where generations in some families had, had worshiped Christ and come to faith in Christ. Terry said that Independent Pres's congregation went outside of there at the same time went outside of their sanctuary and lined both sides of the block that the Christ Church would be approaching on. And they did that to welcome them. And, and they saw the congregation coming, weeping in tears, in grief over losing their church home. And 
How do you think independent pres, the Presbyterians responded when they saw that? In sympathy, they started, they started weeping with them for their brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who were grieving. When Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb, some in the crowd said, see how he loved him. People see what we love by our emotions. What do people see that you and I love? What are we moved to be angry over? Brothers, what moves you and me to weep the way Christ, the perfect man, shed his own tears? Luke 19.41 says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He wept over the unbelievers who would die in their sins because they would not believe in him and follow him as their savior. Let's look at the grand finale. In verse 40, I'm sorry, in verse 38, Jesus walks up to the tomb and in verse 39, he says, take away the stone. Jesus shows that he's not an idle spectator to our grief, nor is he just a past participant who's been there, done that, and gotten the t-shirt when he lived here. No, Jesus approaches the tomb as our savior. He approaches as our champion, coming to defeat our foe. Jesus says, take away the stone, and Martha, Martha, who is always quick to speak her mind, even to Jesus, as she did back in Luke 10, when she said, Jesus, tell my sister to get up, stop listening to you, and come help me. This time, Mar Martha says, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor. Or as the King James says, Lord, by this time, he stinketh. Earlier, back in verse 32, she seemed to be asking for this, to, for Jesus to do exactly what he's about to do. And she said, but even now, I know, Lord, whatever you ask from God, God would give you. But now her doubts would hold her back. And Mary shows that she's like us. She's a mixture of faith and doubt. Faith in Jesus's power to do what she wants him to do but doubt that he would use it for her. Calvin writes that even the best Christians are a mix of faith and doubt. And he thinks Martha, Calvin says Martha has shown extraordinary faith, yet here her doubts would try to stop Jesus from doing what she wants him to do. And I know I'm like this so often. Praying for people to come to faith, family members, friends, praying for those who are struggling, and, but sometimes doing it out of sheer duty, going through the motions, not really believing that God hears my prayers, let alone act on them. And then surprised, surprised when he does answer them. Thankfully, Jesus does not rebuke Martha for her doubts. He gently says in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus is calling Martha back to faith, calls her to set aside her expectations of the regular, material, natural processes of this world 
and to believe in his supernatural, his spiritual powers that are just as real. And more importantly, believe in his compassion and his desire to act on her prayers. Well, by her silence, as the stone is removed, we can assume that Martha does come back to faith. And that is when Jesus displays the glory of God. First, he prays a prayer of thanks to the Lord, not a prayer of request or petition to the Lord to do what he's a, to raise Lazarus from the dead, but a prayer of thanks as if it's already been accomplished. Because in God's will, all future events are so determined and so fixed that he can see them as if they've already been accomplished. And then Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And with the same power that he said, let there be light, and there was light, Jesus demonstrates the power of his word over creation. In this case, the power to give life to the dead. And Lazarus comes hopping out of the tomb. That's, I think he came hopping. Other people said he might have come shuffling. But because he, he's still wrapped in the death sheet, that he was wrapped up and his legs are bound, his arms are bound, there's a, a cloth over his head, they had to release him. He, he did not have the ability to release himself. Let me conclude with this. The Jesus who was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father, receiving our worship right now, making intercessions for us when we pray, he is still fully human, fully God and fully man. He still has many of the same, all of the same emotions that he displays in the Gospels, especially those in this passage. And he still has great compassion for you and for me. Matthew 20, 34 says that Jesus had pity on the blind man when he healed his eyes. Mark 1:41 says that Jesus had pity on the leper when he reached out and touched the leper. Luke 7, 13 says that Jesus had compassion for the weeping widow when she lost her only son. And today's passage shows that he had great compassion for his friends, Mary and Martha, in their grief and sorrow. So considering Christ's passion, I want to leave us with two takeaways. Two takeaways. First is this. The emotion of anger that Christ shows in this passage should be a comfort to us. It should be a comfort to us. Some of you have very justified reasons to be angry. Some of you have been sinned against terribly. In his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, that our church is going to, our small groups are going to be going through in the fall at Christ Presburg. Dane Ortland, the author of the book, writes that you and I should be comforted by the knowledge that, quote, that Jesus is angry alongside you, that he joins you in your anger, and his anger springs from his love and his compassion for you.
But where you and I are unlikely to see justice in this world, we can certainly seek justice, but we often don't find justice. Christ has not only the power, he has the authority to render justice in this life or the next. And that knowledge should help us. It should help us forgive as we trust Christ and his character for justice. Second takeaway, when we lose a loved one to death, we are tempted to wonder, like Mary and Martha, where was Jesus? Why did he not answer our prayers? Why did, not, why he, did he not heal our loved one? The implications of this passage are that Jesus continues to be emotionally moved, especially by the death of his followers. Psalm 116 15 says that precious, it is precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of his saints. So he would likely respond to our questions as he did to Martha's doubts by calling us back to believe, to believe again that we will see the glory of God on that final day when he raises his church to eternal life. God's word says that Christ himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. The same voice that called Lazarus out of the grave, we will hear. It says it will be a voice like an archangel. And with the sound of the trumpet of God, it says the dead in Christ will rise from the grave. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. This passage this morning is a preview of that power that Jesus has. Except it will not be one grave that is opened, but all the graves that have ever been closed. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says, quote, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. In this afternoon's, I'm sorry, in this morning's passage, Jesus binds Satan and plunders the tomb to get one person out. On that last day, he will plunder all the tombs to get all his people out. And then we will finally realize the words of the Apostle Paul who wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that preserved this miracle for us to read this morning. This account of your compassion so that we may know the God we worship is also fully man. God the Son who feels emotions righteously without sin and has great compassion for his people. Lord, remind us of that truth when we have doubts. Recall, help us to recall this passage 
and to remember that you love your people, that you have great compassion for your people and that you are building your church through your church. Lord, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.